welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Sometimes Americans think that they know a few things about the British soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, and they're probably something like this, that they were the scum of the earth, scraped from the East London gutter and prisons to unwillingly serve in America. They were dim-witted, so dim-witted that they obligingly wore red coats, had white cross belts, and stood in long lines, the easier to be shot by clever Americans who hid behind trees and rocks. They had no idea how to fire their guns, and when they did, they missed. British soldiers plundered and looted and deserted as often as they could when they weren't too drunk to do so, and as punishment, they were flogged until they were dead. As it happens, just about every one of those concepts is wrong. As Don Haggis explains in his book, Noble Volunteers, the British soldiers who fought the American Revolution. Don has written many previous books on the British Army of the American Revolution and is also editor of the Journal of the American Revolution. Don was previously on the podcast to talk about flogging and punishment in a behind-the-book episode, which you can find in the archives on our website, historicallythinking.org. Don Haggis, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Glad to be here and really happy you invited me to talk about one of my very favorite subjects. <laughs> uh, the British Army and the American Revolution, as well as your book, because that's always an author's favorite subject. And more specifically, the common British soldier in the American Revolution, not right, just the because, army as a whole, but the individual people that made it up. So we're not going to be talking about the officers. We're not going to be talking about the fool of the family uh, who leads the scum of the earth. Is, is that what Wellington supposedly said? Much later. That's not only what Wellington said. He said it, but yeah. he said it in a very specific context. And in fact, in my book, you'll find there was a guy who said it at the time of the American Revolution. But again, context is everything. You know, yeah. he said it talking about one very particular batch of people at a specific time during the war, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, I don't think in either case they were trying to characterize the army in general. I, I knew it really would become important. <laughs> I think that's a much later thing. I knew it was proverbial in the 1920s for people to say that about uh, the British Army of the 1920s. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so, exactly. And, you know, times change and you get these little sound bites and they, it's really important to look at the context in which they were delivered because they, they often are used in a much broader sense than the person who originally said it intended. So let's begin uh, with where you begin. You have a fantastic anecdote about Samuel Lee of Boston. Uh, uh, could you could you could you deploy that for us? Yeah, I'm rather fond of Samuel Lee, and I'm really glad you appreciate that opening. Uh, Samuel Lee was a tailor, and he came to America in 1767. So by the time the American Revolution broke out, he had been in America for eight years, and through all of this time when the causes of liberty were fomenting, you know, all of the um, issues about taxation without representation and whatnot. He spent some time living in Philadelphia. He spent time living in New York, all the time working as a tailor. And that was his profession. Um, eventually, in 1774, he moved to Boston. At that time, he had a wife and family, but I don't know when he got married, whether his family came with him from Great Britain, where he was originally from, or whether he married in America. But one way or another, he was 
By the time he was in Boston, he was a master tailor, which meant he had several people working for him. He had a large clientele. He had a wife and a family. And on April 19th, 1775, he was one of the people who took up a, a gun and turned out because the British were marching out of Boston. And so he, in every way, characterizes our vision of the, the patriot tradesmen and the common people who took up arms except that Samuel Lee was one of the British soldiers marching out of Boston. He wasn't one of the American militiamen at all. And the great thing about Samuel Lee is um, he, he, he turns our head a little bit about when we think about who British soldiers were, but he was very typical of all those British soldiers. I didn't pick him out because he was a singular, odd anomalous person. I picked him out because he was a very representative of the British soldiers in the ranks marching out. This guy in his mid-30s who's got a family and he has a trade and a profession, and yet he's a soldier the whole time. So that's immediately what we I start to unpack the anecdote. I see all those contradictions to that sort of that that complex mythology of stupid British, stupid drunk you know, British British soldiers that Americans build up to make themselves you know, feel better, or however that began. Um, as you say, tradesman, married in his thirties, um, moves around a lot. Uh, that's not mm -hmm. often our image. He's been in the colonies for a while. Um, you say, of course, there is no such thing as the common British soldier. So the best way to start this is perhaps by talk about the various ways that people joined the British Army and the various motivations. Yes, and that, that's a great topic. The most important aspect of how soldiers got into the British Army during this time period, again, I'm focused on a very specific time period looking at British soldiers who fought during the American Revolution. Um, some historians make the mistake of trying to characterize the British Army during the 18th century. It was a long time period. Things changed a lot. So I focus just on the time of the American Revolution so when the war began, all of the soldiers who were in the army had joined the army before the war. And people miss a concept that the British army at this time was an all-volunteer force. They did, there was no forcing people the army. Uh, there was no pressing people the army, no conscription or any other form of obligatory service. So every single British soldier who was in America or came to America in the early parts of the war was a volunteer. So people ask, well, why does somebody volunteer to join the army? And this is where I point out that the data we have tells us what happened, but it very seldom tells us why it happened. We have only a small number of accounts written by British soldiers where they explicitly say, this is why I joined the army. And when we look at those accounts, we find that all of them, they were people who were gainfully employed somehow. They may not have liked their jobs, but they had work. And they left the army for reasons like, well, my father remarried and I didn't get along with my stepmother. So I ran away from home and I joined the army. Mm -hmm. um, people who... Uh, working as an apprentice, and their apprentice was a very brutal person who beat them regularly and didn't provide them with food, so they left their apprenticeship and joined the army. Um, 
not the kinds of reasons that you would get if you looked at metadata and said, well, I'm studying employment trends during the 18th century, and I see there was a dip in employment, so maybe that's why men joined. Well, maybe, but the people who wrote down their reasons, the reasons tend to be very personal. And many of the ones who joined the army for personal reasons said they just felt they wanted to do something different than what they were already doing. They joined because they had a spirit of adventure. They wanted to travel. They, want, they wanted to wear those cool uniforms and do something important. They wanted the chance to go overseas and see things far away that they would never get to see if they stayed at the job as a weaver or a farmhand or what have you. So again, when we look at individual people and their motivations, it turns out to be not the kinds of things we would just guess at or make assumptions about trying to characterize with a broad brush. Are, are there records of, of prior trades uh, in reg- – so reg- records are kept at the regimental level in 1775 to 1783, correct? That's correct. Unfortunately, a lot of the records at the regimental level don't survive, so we have to rely on some other sets. And we'll, we'll talk later about yeah. sources for all this information. But in general, when a man joined the army, one of the pieces of information that recorded was their trade – Mm-hmm. The army was looking for people who were, they were looking for men who were fully grown, which generally means somewhere between 17 and about 22 or 23 years old. Mm-hmm. And if, if we look at the, the data, that, the limited data that is available on enlistment, we find that the vast majority of British soldiers joined the army when they were in their early 20s. Huh. So you have some maybe 15, 20% joining as teenagers and maybe another 15, 20% joining when they're past the age of about 24. But most of them are in this sweet spot in their early 20s, which means in this time period that they may have, if they went to school at all, they may have gone to school until they're about 12 years old. So what did they then do between being 12 and being 17, 18, 20 years old? Just they worked at some job or another. Mm-hmm. And they may have had a trade that's just generically called laborer, mm-hmm. which simply means somebody who didn't learn a skilled trade, or they may have done an apprenticeship and a few years at some skilled trade. So we have a whole army that's composed of people who have had some kind of prior work experience before joining the army. Again, something that, that goes a little bit against the way we might think about it using today's standards of what an army is composed of. And by the the 1775 army, the army that marches out of Boston, Samuel Lee and his compatriots, they're much older than in their early 20s. They 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 seem to average more in the late 20s, or is that well? They actually higher? average in the early 30s. Really, quite frankly, okay. yeah. If we look at when I do a demographic breakdown of almost every single regiment in the British Army during the time it was in America, no matter what year I pick. Mm-hmm. Because, again, the demographics within a regiment changes during the war. But in general, we find about 20% of the soldiers in the regiment are under the age of 25. And about 20% of the soldiers in the regiment are over the age of 40. Wow. So that leaves, doing the math, 60% of the soldiers who are between the ages of 25 and 40. Yeah. Well, this, again, it's like, wow, why are these old guys? But when you volunteered to join the army, you joined the army as a career. So you didn't sign up for a stint or a hitch of, you know, three years, five years, what have you. You just 
join the army like you take a job. It's not very common to take a job and say, well, I'm going to work for you, Mr. Employer, for two years and then I'll quit. Um, you join the army as a career and you serve as a soldier until you're no longer fit for service. Fit for service means you're capable of doing something like walking from Boston, Massachusetts to Concord and back in one day, which is about a 40 mile round trip. Well, a man with reasonable fitness can do that well into his 40s. It's not that absurd to be able to camp all summer lying on the ground and walk 20 miles a day when, if you're doing it steadily. So a soldier, a man joins the army in his early 20s and he might serve for a good 20, 25 years until he's no longer fit for service. If you recognize that this is the enlistment age, early 20s, and then you serve until you're no longer fit for service, you, of course, end up with this distribution of most of the men in the army are going to be somewhere between 25 and 40 at any given mm -hmm. time. Of course, with some younger ones and some older ones, but the majority are in this sweet spot between about 25 and 40. One other thing that uh, I guess shouldn't have surprised me is that there seems to be, based on your demographic data, a much higher rate of literacy in the British Army than we might have thought. Uh, there is. Here the data is limited and a little bit tricky because yep. we'd like to know how many men knew how to read and write. Those soldiers who left us personal accounts are very few, and they tend to be people who could write because they left us written accounts. Um, and we find a lot of them talked about, well, I went to school at least until I was 10 years old, 12 years old, somewhere in there. But we only have a few accounts like this. We only have a small number of writings of British soldiers, not enough to do statistical analysis usefully. But what we do have are a large set of documents, pension records that British soldiers signed their names to. When we look at the soldiers that signed their names, it ends up being somewhere between about 55 and 60% of the soldiers put their signature on a document. Now, this gets into the study of literacy. Does the ability to sign one's name mean that the person could read and write? It used to be thought so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, apparently some people were just learned only to sign their name. Yeah, that was the only writing they knew how to do. So we don't have enough data to really tell us what the literacy rate was in the Army. But this information using signatures alone points to a literacy mm -hmm. rate of somewhere between 50 and 60%. That's where we end up with this. And we find plenty of little anecdotal accounts of soldiers writing petitions or writing memorials or some or writing letters and uh, soldiers reading things, soldiers owning books. Mm -hmm. Not enough to do statistics because the anecdotal accounts that turn up in court trial records and other um, fragmentary information – but the idea of a soldier being literate certainly was not anomalous in any way. And sergeants I, had to be literate in order to do their job. Well, yeah, non-commissioned officers oh, were yeah. almost invariably literate, so corporals and sergeants. In yeah. a given British regiment, about 20% of the men were non-commissioned officers. And the British Army put a high premium on literacy for these people because they had to do a lot of paperwork. Yeah. Fortunately, because some of this paperwork survives and then we yeah. know what's going on. Um, so important was the premium on literacy that British regiments 
some of them at least, had schools within them. And they, they looked for an active sergeant or an old soldier who was good with his letters and numbers to teach younger soldiers who, who needed this information and to teach children of soldiers how to read and write. Um, again, information is sparse, but there's enough of it to see a trend going on. We talk a lot about this in the book, of course, uh, mm-hmm. details on regimental schools and education of soldiers and what have you. Yeah, that, I found that probably my most fascinating part for me <laughs> yeah. was the, I mean, uh, well, we'll get to that because in training, but just a few more questions that might occur to people. Um, there is no minimal enlistment. You, it's, this is more like the Roman army. You're in there for like, if you're en- entering in your late teens, early 20s, you're looking at a 20-year hitch. In, in general, yeah. And again, it's not even a hitch. It's until you're no longer fit for service. There's right. no defined length of time. You, you serve until the army doesn't need you anymore or you're no longer capable of doing the duty of a soldier. So if I get bored of being a sergeant at 35 and I go to my commanding officer and say, I'd like a discharge, I don't get one unless I'm no longer fit. That's right. Well, or unless you're a good sergeant and the officer thinks, yeah, this, this guy's deserving of it. And we have enough other men. We're not in the time of crisis okay. when we desperately need the people. So sure. Well, we'll give this okay. guy his discharge, right. but there's no guarantee of this. You can always ask. <laughs> now, it, it, well, it's interesting. You said uh, it's difficult. You mustn't study the entire 18th century British army and believe it's all the same. And as you may clear in the book, things change a lot between 75 and 83. Um, Absolutely. A, a yes. lot. Um, so, but so in 1775 or 70, let's say 73, 74, uh, what do I get for joining the army? I mean, what's the, what's the benefit to me if I'm a apprentice tailor, what's the benefit to me other than escaping a bad uh, master? What's the benefit to me? Oh, well, you get to serve your country and see the world, of course, young man. That? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, but I mean, it, it's, this is like my, my grandfather's only remark, to, I think, about why he joined, volunteered like a few weeks after War One was declared, was that he didn't want to be behind the counter of the family store for the rest of his life. Well, and, and that's, that, that's a very, that sounds like a lot of your people, I hate to make a historical like comparisons between oh. eras and countries, but it seems a very similar thing. Well, it is a very similar thing. Um, And again, some of the accounts that I talk about in this book, people write things like, uh, I could not really say why. I just felt a strong desire to be a soldier. Well, that's a pretty common thing in young men. Mm -hmm. Um, Incentives were certainly existed. Um, If you're looking at a society that has a large portion of itinerant labor, so if you're a farm laborer, you might have to go from place to place as, as there's demand. If you join the army, you suddenly have a completely secure job. The pay isn't very good, but it is guaranteed. You're guaranteed to get clothing every year and get the clothing you need. If you need a new pair of shoes, army guarantees that you're going to get it. Um, you get an enlistment bounty, which is equal to about between one and two months pay of a, of a common profession during that time of a laborer or a tradesman. So it's a pretty good amount of money up front. Um, people make a big deal out of the idea that during this time, the army managed your budget for you. And they said, well, out of your pay, they deducted the cost of food and clothing. 
kids. Well, if you join the army today, guess what? Out of your pay is deducted the cost of food and clothing. This is no surprise for a soldier. And if you're not working in the army and you get paid, you still have to buy food and clothing and you have to pay for lodging, which is something you never have to pay for in the army. So there are a lot of benefits in the stability and the guarantee that you'll get this pay. You won't have to go out every day and find work. There's nothing seasonable about the work like there might be in a lot of other itinerant labor forms. Um, there are incentives in the army that hardly anybody seems to have recognized in the literature in that you get a base pay and the base pay isn't very good. But during this time period, almost any time you were required to do any other form of labor, mm-hmm. the army built and maintained roads, the army built and maintained fortifications soldiers had to build barracks and maintain barracks. Well, all of these things got extra pay for doing it, and extra pay at a rate that was almost equal to doubling your daily pay. Hmm. So you have a base wage, but then if they say, all right, soldier, you have to go and uh, work on building barracks for three weeks. During those three weeks, you get almost the same amount of money for working on building the barracks as you're also getting for your base pay. And you can go year after year after year with this extra work almost every single day of your career. So there's quite a lot of additional opportunities to earn money. Mm-hmm. A man like Samuel Lee, the tailor, is working on tailoring the clothing for the army. This is why I say he was employed as a tailor even while he was a soldier. And he's getting paid as a tailor even while he's a soldier. So he's making a substantial amount of money over and above the base pay. And these are other guys who are, as you say, are cop. Well, I think we even talked about this in our behind the book conversation. There are cobblers. There are during the war millwrights. People with some experience of running a mill become very valuable uh, in the in the exactly. back. Exactly. Every single, well, not every single trade, but many of the trades. If you're a carpenter yes. and you're in the British garrison in New York, you might get called into the shipyards to do work for the Navy while you're a soldier and get extra pay for this. Mm-hmm. Soldiers are getting extra pay just for driving wagons, supplies from one place to another. Again, trades, as you say, any kind of trade in the clothing industry, the, the shoemakers and the breeches makers and the tailors, um, hatters are all able to earn additional money over and above the base pay of a soldier just by doing work for the army. So this is like on a on a different way of looking at this, the our logistics, the logistics tail of the modern United States Army is enormous, much bigger than the fighting front, the fighting spear of the of the of, of the army. The British Army of 1775 integrates a lot of the things that we think of as separate uh, MOSs or military occupations. They're they're sort of integrated into the actual fighting ranks of the army, which leads to different complexities. <laughs> and yeah, well, the, this is true, and the, to a large extent, that's true. There is a a whole separate arm of the army that does specialty true, logistics true. things, which I don't deal with in this book. My book is exclusively about infantrymen, um, the privates, the drummers and fifers, the non-commissioned officers. Um, it's focused entirely on them, but during peacetime, all these people are in an organization called a regiment, and the regiment is designed to be able to move from place to place and exist almost independently of any other kind of military support structure. So within the ranks, they have all these 
people who had worked for several years in some trade before they joined the army, now they can make use of this in order to subsist. If they're in some place like Illinois, where the British army did have posts before the war, before the American Revolution began. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the regiment before we move on, because that is very important. Uh, and people who know about the British army, um, even vaguely, know that the regimental history and all that's very important. But this is 1775. It's not 1782. It's not, it's not 1882 with children's reforms. Anyway, there's a lot of changes. Uh, there's a lot of invented tradition in the regimental system. What's a regiment in 1775? Well, a regiment in 1775 is the what I'll call the deployable organization. It consists of about 35 officers and about 500 soldiers. You'll see Different books will give you different numbers, a very precise numbers, 447 officers and men. Well, that was true in 1775. That's what's called the established strength, and that's on paper if you have exactly all the positions filled. But it varied, and once war began, the established size was increased, and then it was increased again, and then it was increased again, then it was decreased. So I just say, if you think of a regiment of about 500 men, that's a good rule of thumb that puts you in the ballpark no matter what time of the war it was. Um, it was divided into 10 companies, <clears throat> each with three officers and six non-commissioned officers and what have you, and somewhere between 30 and 50 private soldiers. There were no specialty ranks among the private soldiers, uh, with the exception of being a drummer or a fifer. Uh and during this time period, almost every British regiment recruited from anywhere in the British Isles it could get men. Mm-hmm. So as we get into later time periods, beginning right after the American Revolution, we get more specialization geographically of the regiments. And we're, we're accustomed to saying the, the British have all these great county titles, the Cheshire Regiment and the Staffordshire Regiment and the West Riding Regiment. All of these county titles went into effect in 1782, which was right at the very, very, very end of the American Revolution. They had no impact on the American Revolution whatsoever, Mm. even though a lot of books about the revolution like to include the county titles. They were not in use during this time. Most regiments had a mix of people from all over the British Isles. There are a few exceptions. Regiments raised in Scotland in particular often were regional but most of the regular regiments in the British Army had people from all over, including people from the European continent, including people born and raised in North America. But they were mostly English, Irish, and Scottish, and they're mostly quite a blend of those three, rather than being affiliated with any particular region. And at the time, they're mostly, mostly in common parlance, just designated by their number. They don't have the, spe- the cute nicknames and all the rest of that stuff, and, you know. And that's exactly right. In the 18th, at the beginning of the 18th century, regiments were known by the name of their colonels. Yeah, that's right. Um, so this is things and, have changed. And around, and around the middle of the century, around the 1750s, um, the War Office recognized some impracticalities of this because colonels change, and every time the colonel changes, you have a different name for the same organization. That's a pain in the neck. So they said, "We're giving every regiment a number." And the number was based on when it was first established in the British Army. Some of these regiments had existed since the 
latter part of the 17th century. Some of them were created for the first time during the 18th century, but the number was based on its seniority from the date that it was first created. Um, at the beginning of the war, there were 70 infantry regiments. And then during the revolution, about two dozen more regiments were created. Some of them were disbanded when the war ended. So training is uh, implemented at the regimental, well, most things are implemented at the regimental level. Training can actually be different from regiment to regiment. Am I right about that as, as you describe it? That's absolutely correct. This was a very, um, the, the regiment was the center of the soldier's life and most specific policies were implemented at the regimental level. There were a lot of training materials that were more widely distributed, some of which were officially sanctioned by the army, by the war office, and some of which were just written by private individuals who wrote books saying, hey, I was an officer for 20 years, and here's all these great things that we did in my regiment that we recommend you should do as well. Some of these books became quite popular, and there are a lot of common threads that you'll find from one regiment to another to the extent that we know the details of what regiments did. But every regiment could implement its own policies and procedures for how soldiers were trained. There were some specifics for how weapons were handled, a thing called a manual of arms, and there were some uniform marching orders, how formations were created and how groups of soldiers were moved around that were supposed to be in common across the army as a whole, so that when regiments worked together, they'd at least have some basic structure of how they were to move around. But a local commander could put together whatever orders made the most sense for the time and place where the army was operating, where his little portion of the army was operating. This came to bear, this became very important during the American Revolution because it, what it allowed um, what seems like a, a, a loosey-goosey structure to us. Wow, regiments doing their own training. They have the latitude to make changes and, and do whatever local things they need. Well, this makes them adaptable and makes them flexible. We have regiments of career soldiers. So when we, again, go back and think about the recruiting and the timeline of a career, at the beginning of the American Revolution, most of the soldiers who are in the army already have at least five years under their belts of being soldiers. They know all the basics about how to handle a gun and fire it and all the basic marching things. These are all second nature it makes it quite easy for a local commander to say, wow, we need to develop some new tactics for this specific place where we are. And we know everybody can handle that because we don't have to teach them just how to hold the gun properly and how to shoot it properly and, and all the basics of maintaining their equipment. These guys know that already. So they can learn a new tactic quite easily and quite quickly. Did they, um, and let's talk about how they adapted to war, but uh, part of that is uh, one of these the myths is that British soldiers never fired their guns. And it's true that they might not have fired their guns as even as their officers might like, because I, I suppose the officers had to pay for the powder. I mean, how did that, how did that work? I mean, gunpowder is expensive and the war office doesn't want to give it away. Well, um, yeah, and this is, here's where we get some of the challenges of books that study the 18th century as a whole compared right. to saying what happened in the time leading up to the American Revolution. Because it is true that in times of peace, ammunition was kind of expensive. And in fact, the bullets were even more expensive than the gunpowder. 
So it was possible for a soldier in peacetime to fire his gun only a few times a year, eight or ten times with live ammunition. He might fire with blank ammunition, especially to do salutes and ceremonies and things like that a little more. But a soldier who joined the army, say, in 1765, could go all the way up until 1774, and he learned to fire the weapon and to use it well and to handle it well, but he might not have done very much actual firing with live ammunition until he comes to Boston. And the army that's formed in Boston, or coalesced, I should say, in Boston in 1774, their mission was to keep the peace, not to fight a war. Remember, conflict hadn't broken out. And their goal was to prevent a war from beginning. But immediately they started training to prepare for the possibility of a war. So in 1774 and early 1775, the army that's in Boston started training very much with live ammunition and the kinds of formations they might need to go into battle and going on long marches into the country to get the men exercised and what have you. So in the lead up, in the, in the four months before conflict broke out on April 19th, 1775, most British soldiers had fired as many as 80 rounds of live ammunition. And they're firing not just willy-nilly, they're firing at targets. The, the, the term during the time period was firing at marks from where we get the term marksmanship. Um, there, there are accounts of soldiers in Boston putting out rafts with targets on them and firing off the piers because when they're in the water, the target's moving. It's not even just in a fixed position. And they fire on Boston Common individually and as smaller groups and then in larger volleys. So, so on the one hand, you can say, yeah, during the 18th century, British soldiers didn't fire very often. But in this specific time period we're concerned of, they trained specifically to get ready for the possibility of a war. Mm -hmm. Did they do any training? Um, did they sort of do uh, modern sort of um, more modern exercises and wargaming? I know that American soldiers in, like, say, the Legion of the United States in 1794, Anthony Wayne had them in like basically a lot well, – um, in blank firing exercises versus one another, and you can find people wounded with um, gunpowder or, or patches uh, in, you know, in sort of in this sort of mock combat, there are injuries just the way there are in modern training exercises. Did, did the British do those sorts of things as well? Oh, they absolutely did. Yeah. Mock battles, in fact, were great. Um, I don't want to say they were entertainments because they weren't done in order to entertain but people came from far and wide to see annual reviews and mock battles. In Great Britain, we have detailed records of these things. Every year, each regiment, when it was in Great Britain, had to go through an annual inspection. And it went through all the things of putting the men out on parade and officers looked at the in detail at the regiment's paperwork and at the state of their clothing and equipment and all things. But they also had to do a big field review. And this included a lot of the parade ground maneuvers of trooping the colors and what have you. But also they culminated in a tactical exercise. Uh -huh. If the regiment was stationed in some location where it was all alone, 
they would do a great demonstration of regimental tactics. This is how we're going to assault and cross a bridge. This is how we're going to attack an enemy in the woods. This is how we're going to, you know, move quickly from one place to another. All the different evolutions they might have to. Um, if it was a place like Dublin where there's six or eight regiments together, then they do the field review together and they might even set up opposing forces Mm-hmm. And they put out their skirmishers, their light infantry, and their grenadiers and skirmish lines, and they again attack each other in the woods. And then one force retreats into a village, and they demonstrate how they would attack a um, an enemy in in a fixed position like this, and all sorts of things. And there are detailed records of all these exercises. They still exist in the War Office. Um, some of this kind of thing went on in America, too. The regiments were much more widely distributed when they were posted in America before the war began. But they're still maintaining some sense of operational readiness by going through these exercises. Unfortunately, we don't have nearly the amount of records. But here and there, there'll be a newspaper account of uh, there was a review of such and such a regiment in New York today, and they drew a a large number of spectators and the colonel said it was a very fine regiment and what have you, but, mm-hmm. but they don't go into the same level of detail that we'd like the mechanics of what sorts of things they did. Uh, very briefly, um, this sort of training regimen explains why, um, as we were saying before we began, uh, oftentimes uh, popular books about the war, even um, people who don't know, haven't read much about the military aspects of the war, they believe that all the war is like Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill. Um, but yeah. in, rea- in reality, this anyone who spends 10 or 15 minutes reading about subsequent battles and subsequent maneuvers knows that the British adapt remarkably quickly to war in America. In many ways, they adapt faster than Americans do to the varying natures of, of the war. Um, and this training regime explains why. That's ex- exactly right. And I, I run into this all the time, the amount of um, articles that people write and books people write about the battles at Lexington and Concord and the Battle of Bunker Hill compared to the amount of literature that's written about some subsequent much more important battles and much more militarily interesting battles is really remarkable. And people end up trying to characterize the way the British army operated strictly in terms of two battles that occurred right as the war was beginning. And um, if, if we think of modern context a lot in terms of our understanding of events happening when they're happening, Lexington and Concord occurs as a big battle. Well, nobody just goes home and says, wow, there's a war on, and now we're going to make a full commitment to having a big war. It takes a while. It's like, wow, these armies, you know, the the regular army and the militia had this big firefight and a lot of people were killed. What do we do? Mm -hmm. And it takes a while to adapt. You know, the first thing everybody wants is say, let's try to figure out some way to not have a big war happen. And on and on. The Battle of Bunker Hill occurs two months later under similar circumstances. It's not widely acknowledged that we have a full-blown war. We're going to be at it for a long time. We have to do all of the changes that we make to go from a peacetime army to a wartime army. Instead, there's much more of a mentality of what can we do to get this conflict ended quickly? You know, so... And throughout history, when armies go from peace to war, it's very common for the first 
few months to go really badly, even for very good armies. They, they have a rough time making this pivot from, mm -hmm. from a peace footing to a war footing. It's happened to the United States over and over when wars begin. But once a professional military gets into the mode of, okay, we got a real war going on here, folks, and we're going to have to make a big commitment to fighting it, they tend to adapt very well. The British Army adapted very well. If we look at Bunker Hill, Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, 1775, when did the war end? 1781 was the last major battle. Peace finally came in 1783. Eight years of war. Well, if the British Army had done everything during those eight years, the way they did in those first two battles, the war wouldn't have lasted eight years. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, it, and it turned out that after Bunker Hill, the Americans didn't win very many battles for quite the long time. Mm -hmm. They had some good strategic wins, which weren't always even on the battlefield. But when you look at what was going on when the soldiers were actually face-to-face -face and doing the fighting, British Army did remarkably well throughout, especially in the first half of the war, and then for the most part continuing even until the very end of the war. The British won most of the battles that they fought, mm -hmm. which so, reminds us that winning and losing a war isn't necessarily a matter of winning and losing battles. It is not. Um, and this is I mean, basically what you've written is the social history of the British Army and the American Revolution. And this sort of the society that had been, that, that had been created in the army explains why it adapts so quickly. Yes, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the, sort of you have some chapters on, 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 uh, on let's call it room and board. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the traditional American understanding of these things is, is like at Valley Forge winter, those guys are out in these log cabins, these huts, smoky, freezing, uh, they don't have no food. The British are in Philadelphia. They're snug as bugs in the rug. They're in these nice row houses, eating soft pretzels, cheesesteaks, <laughs> um, probably throwing batteries at the Eagles games, whatever they were doing. But they, uh, it was, uh, those, that's the contrast, but things are not quite as clear cut. Uh, for one thing, I happen to know that, you know, uh, by November, when the uh, late November, when the British army attacks Fort Mifflin, they're digging up uh, bodies of Americans out of their graves to see if they have shoes on so they can get them. So there was yeah. there was a there was a, a, a supply crisis in the British army in 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 uh, the early winter of 1777. But it's also lodging is not so neat for the British army as we think it is. Could you talk about that? Because it's um, sure if, if you're a British soldier, you. When you're in Great Britain, if things go well, you're spending a lot of time in your barracks or you're spending some time quartered. You might even be living in private homes. A, an enormous misconception about the American Revolution that um, is continually propagated is that when the British Army came to America, British soldiers were quartered in private homes. And this was one of the things that fomented the revolution. And it's totally not true. If you read the Quartering Act, and you can find the text of the 1774 Quartering Act online, it explicitly says that British soldiers are not allowed to live in private homes. Of course, once war breaks out, all bets are off about that. That's a peacetime law, and both the American and British armies lodge people in private homes. <laughs> um, but the common soldier, especially when he's on campaign, very seldom has a luxury like that. In a place, in a garrison, 
like New York, which is now full of British soldiers for most of the war. A soldier will spend his winter in a hut that is dug into a hillside and has a sod sides and front walls and maybe one or two windows in it and a thatched roof. In the summertime, he goes out into an encampment and lives in a tent on Long Island somewhere. When he goes on campaign, he may take with him only a blanket and spend a lot of time, spend a lot of nights rolled up in the blanket. If there are barns or outbuildings in the area. He may get shelter there. Soldiers build what was what they called wigwams, which became a very popular term in the British Army in America. A wigwam is simply a hut made of whatever brush or boughs or what have you that the soldiers can gather in the area. And this became one of the most common lodgings for British soldiers on campaign during the war. Very easy to build them quickly and then just abandon them. And the next year, if you're campaigning in the same area, all the vegetation grows back and you can build new ones. Um, but British soldiers spent a lot of their time sleeping with no shelter at all, only with their blanket. Again, wigwams, sometimes tents, but it depended very much on where you were and how long you were there. If you were fortunate enough to be in a town like Newport, Rhode Island for a long period, you might be able to spend a lot of your time in an abandoned house. And very seldom would soldiers get lodged in a house that actually had residents. But because wars come, sometimes people flee the area and there are a lot of empty buildings. These are the ones that soldiers get quartered in when they have any buildings available at all. Uh, so what do they eat? I mean, what was their, I, I, I don't know if you have a kilocalorie consumption or sort of yeah. chart, but what's the nutrition of the British Army? Yeah, this is, I, I haven't tried to break this down. You know, I'm no nutritionist. <laughs> the, there was a standard ration. And this is another thing that unfortunately is misstated in a lot of literature. Many of the books that talk about how soldiers lived on either side will take a singular piece of information and apply it to all situations. Say, how did soldiers live? In tents. Well, that was true sometimes. Um, how did soldiers eat? Well, if it was wintertime and they're in a garrison, they get a standard ration that consists of a pound of meat and a pound of bread, um, a certain amount of um, rather butter or some oil, and a certain amount of peas, which are dried peas per day, and a few other things. When a soldier goes on campaign, that ration changes to nothing but a pound of meat and a pound of bread. And this is per day. Mm-hmm. Now, here too, the allocation of the ration, it's written down as each soldier receives a pound of this, a pound of that, three ounces of this, three ounces of that. And there's a tendency to think of each soldier standing in line and somebody scooping out these things to him as an individual. Totally not the way this apportionment worked. Instead, a group of soldiers forms together in what's called a mess. They have a single kettle, and one person from the mess goes and collects all of the rations for the mess in that kettle. So instead of each soldier getting one pound of meat, one soldier goes up and he gets the five pounds of bread, meat and the five pounds of bread and the however much portion of these other things, and they cook it together and then they share it among themselves. 
Um, you know, again, looking just at what the, the allocated ration was, we tend to overthink and say, well, that must be also how it was distributed and how it was consumed, which is not the case. Soldiers on campaign, pound, of, uh, pound and a half of meat, pound and a half of bread per day. They need other things to supplement this, but the thinking is that campaigns tend to occur in the summer months. This is when farms are active and when vegetation is available. So soldiers do some amount of foraging. They get their vegetables from the fields. They get their greens from the woods, wherever they can obtain them. An army doesn't matter if it's the Americans or the British or the French or the Germans. An army moving through an area is like a flock of locusts, yeah. and they tend to go and denude any local, denude the area of whatever local produce there is. If circumstances are really good for the local farmer, they might get IOUs for that money, and maybe at the end of the war they'll get paid for it, but that's a pretty iffy proposition. What it comes down to is the soldier's diet varied a great deal depending on exactly where he was and what was going on. So here, yeah. too, we can look at some textbook that says, here's the standard ration, but that doesn't really tell us what the person's life was like. <laughs> right. It's in the memoirs, there's an amazing hankering for salad greens. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. You, you, you describe. It's also, it's always struck me that the war in the American South is – it, one of the key things to understand what's happening in, what, in any one given location is how many times an army has been through it in the last month, two months, three months. Because you can see uh, the challenges of supporting an army increase as, as time goes on, say, in the South Carolina backcountry, especially yeah, it, when, you've got, it, when you've got so many horses um, on, the, on the rebel side. It's true on both sides. Um, you know, the more regular you want the provisions of the army to be, that means the more stuff you have to carry. And if you want the army to move quickly from place to place, you can't have a great large numbers of wagons carrying all these barrels of flour and driving cattle for the fresh meat. So you rely instead on foraging from the local region. Well, if the, some other army has already been through that local region, you suddenly find yourself with not many supplies and not many things you can scrounge in the area. And this did have an impact on how campaigns were conducted sometimes, as you said, especially in the South. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about, speaking of locusts, let's talk about plundering, uh, which is, which is a, a sort of, it, it's where the sort of social makeup of the British army really um, affects, probably it's not too hard, far to say, it affects the direction of the American war. Um, yeah. It absolutely does. Um, you can't talk about the British Army and the American Revolution without talking about plundering, but you can certainly mischaracterize the army by talking about plundering too much or by failing to understand the context. So I put this book together, Noble Volunteers, I put it together in three sections. One, the first section deals with the peacetime army that was sent to America, the soldiers who were sent to America to keep the peace, not to fight a war. Then it gets into the wartime army and how it adapted and other things. But soldiers who were sent to America to keep the peace, not to fight a war, were nonetheless not the least bit welcome in America. They were resented. So as soon as soldiers arrive in what they think of as a British colony, 
We're not going to a foreign land. We're going to a part of Great Britain, and we're being sent there to keep the peace. What a great thing to do. And they find out that the local population despises them and and <clears throat> subjects them to all manner of insult and abuse on a daily basis. And the soldier also finds that he doesn't have much legal recourse if a, a local citizen throws a rock at a soldier and then runs off, well, there's not much the soldier can do. If the soldier picks up the rock and throws it back, then he gets arrested by the army and he gets subject to a court-martial and he gets disciplined. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a bunch of soldiers in Boston as sent to keep the peace who become more and more frustrated and then feel like they are enemies. Mm-hmm. Wow, these Americans over here who we thought of, we're, we're coming here trying to protect them from some rebellion that's going to overturn their government, and they're treating us like we're enemies. They don't like us one bit, so we don't like them either. When war broke, breaks out, now instead of a military force thinking that they're on British territory, they feel like they're in enemy territory. So as soon as they get out into the countryside... They're not thinking, wow, we, we better be very protective of the local people who are our friends. They, they might as well be in France or some foreign land where they feel like everybody hates them, and so they're entitled to anything they can take. Plunder becomes a massive problem almost from the first day of the war and continues to be a massive problem throughout the war. It's very much not a matter of sanctioned policy. British soldiers get tried and convicted, and some even get executed for plundering throughout the course of the war. And yet it continues um, rampantly throughout the war. British soldiers, again, you use the term locusts, they are opportunists who pick up pretty much anything they can lay their hands on. And again, this all starts before the war begins when there's a lot of tension between the populace and the soldiers. By the time the war breaks out, they don't feel like they're protecting anybody. But let me push back. I was thinking about this during the reading the book. Um, you know, there's four or 5,000 men in the Boston garrison by 17, April 19th, 1775, right? That's the, mm -hmm. you know, the numbers, uh, by 1776, by say July 15th, 1776, there's something like 30,000 men, more than that, 40,000 men, including all the, I guess the Germans, uh, on Staten Island, encamped ready to uh, attack Long Island. Um, surely, uh, the, those five thousand Boston, uh, the those who had served in the Boston garrison, those who had learned the enmity of of the Massachusetts natives, um, surely they're not just the yeast in the rest of the the dough, are they? I mean, a lot of what I've been curious about, and um, is. So many of these soldiers are garrisoned, had been garrisoned in Ireland. Are these are these habits they learn from suppressing the Irish population? I mean, I'm sound like an Irish nationalist here, which I'm not. But I, is that is that this is this has been a lot of 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 similarities have been made by historians between the way that um, the English regard Ireland and the way they regard the American natives. Is this the way that British soldiers regard the Americans and Irish as as sort of a hostile force that can be plundered? Well, they. The British soldiers did not plunder in Ireland, is one thing to okay. keep in mind. That's, you know, that's, they were military that. campaigning, but um, but certainly, yeah, there was plenty of animosity in Ireland between Irish people and British soldiers. But there are also plenty of Irishmen in the British Army. So that's true. 
we, it, it's, it's hard to characterize this. This is where, again, I, I say often the data tells us what, but it doesn't tell us why. Right. I can see we can we have data that tells us about plundering. We don't have soldiers who write down, here's why I was plundering. <laughs> so we have to do a little bit of extrapolation here. It's also important to realize, as you said, we have a British army of 30,000 on Staten Island. And then we can look and say, wow, look, then during that um, a two-month period, there were 10 trials of soldiers for plundering. Well, 10 soldiers out of 30,000, that doesn't show necessarily that plundering is rampant. That shows that there's some segment of the soldiers. If you take a location where a large military force is garrisoned for a long period of time, like Norfolk, Virginia, today, and you look at a year's worth of newspapers, you're probably going to find a certain amount of military personnel involved in crime in the local area. And here, too, if you want to, you could look at 10 years of newspapers in a certain area and write down and say, look, there were 200 crimes committed by military personnel. So, wow, all these military personnel must be criminals. Mm -hmm. Well, no, there's a segment of them. The Army's a large population, and it's got a portion of bad characters in it, just as any large population tends to do. Um, so I'm sitting here talking a lot about plundering being a massive problem for the British Army, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all British soldiers were rampant plunderers. Mm. It means that enough of them were rampant plunderers to spoil the British Army peacekeeping mission and to spoil this attempt to, to be perceived as people who were going to protect the population. And it only takes a small number to do that. Again, Americans should recognize this from recent activities of the U.S. Army in the Middle East. You go in, you want to win hearts and minds. It only takes a few incidents of soldiers doing bad things to the population to completely turn the population against the military in spite of all the best efforts of the commanders and the vast majority of the soldiers. So some of this is what's going on in America during the revolution. We, we can't say that all British soldiers were just plunderers, but we can say that a few of them at least were, and this caused enormous problems with how the army was perceived by the American population in places where it spent long periods of time. Well, let's uh, finish up talking about the, uh, the British army in the revolution by uh, touching on something that people probably don't think about, which is what happens when the war is over. Um, the army, the British army, I mean, uh, people often have another mistaken idea, uh, vision in their head that the British army is the largest in Europe. It's not. Um, mm -hmm. It's relatively small. It's very small compared to the French army. And, you know, it's win-loss record is, it's okay. But uh, if we were looking at the ever victorious, if we're looking at the most victorious army, probably is the French army in 1775 in terms of massive record of success and 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 certainly size but the uh with the end of the war the navy shrinks and also the army shrinks so regiments are disbanded so you could describe what it takes to break up a regiment and what happens to soldiers who are leaving their their regimental society uh sure and this is you know, a big the main purpose of this book was to remind people that 
the British army was made up of people, you know, mm-hmm. that a soldier isn't some generic thing that just occurs in isolation. It's a person. And he joined the army with a reason. And after he left the army, something happened to him. Um, so I have two chapters in the book that talk about what happens to soldiers when the, when their term of service ends for whatever reason. Um, some people, we said they join the army until they're no longer fit for service. And sometimes that might occur three days after the war begins. A man might be wounded or he might be almost 60 years old by that time and, and discharged. At the end of the war, there's a large force reduction. The army has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger during the course of the war. At the end of the war, there's a drawdown. British soldiers at the end of the war, who are no longer needed, are discharged from the army, and they're given a choice. They can be discharged in America and just walk away and go on with their lives and do whatever they want. And people have asked me repeatedly, well, how many of these people settled in America? And the real answer is, I don't know, because once they leave the army, the army doesn't keep records on them anymore. So we don't have a comprehensive place to look and count the number who chose to settle in America. I can tell you how many were discharged when they're in America, but I don't know how many of those then signed on to a ship and sailed somewhere else or what have you. But a soldier could just walk away from the army in America. A soldier could go back to Great Britain and take his discharge there. Or some of the soldiers were offered land grants in Canada. And a large number did settle in Nova Scotia after the war. The soldiers went back to Great Britain. If they wished to, they could go to the pension office and apply to get a British military pension. Um, And a moderate number of soldiers did this. My estimate is something around half of the soldiers who were eligible to receive pensions actually did so. Things that could make you ineligible would be If you're in the army and you die, then no pension for you if you desert. So so we have to look at, you know, what portion of men even could have gotten pensions. And of those who could have gotten pensions, about half of them actually did. It's working out to be a little more than half. Um, A lot of soldiers, after they were discharged, later joined the army again because it couldn't have been such a bad career. Many of these men... Um, I'd look, take an example of one British regiment that discharged 65 men in America at the end of the war. So now they're in a place where they could go settle, they could start a farm, they could own land. Of those 65 men, more than 40 of them turned around and re-enlisted in the army again within the next month hmm. and went and stayed in the British army in Canada for years after that. So this this points us toward something that couldn't have been as bad a career as some people make it out to be. If people who were free to go voluntarily re-enlisted at the first opportunity they had. Um, so it, it, it's challenging to retrace these careers. And I include a number of stories of soldiers, just a small handful of the ones I know in the book who um, talk about their experiences, whether they got land grants in Nova Scotia, whether they went on the, uh, on the pension rolls, some men stayed in the British Army as soldiers into the early 1800s because, again, they're serving until they're no longer fit for service, 20, 30, sometimes 40 years. 
So here too, it widely varies what might have happened to a soldier. Some did settle in America. I'm aware of two towns in the United States that are named after British private soldiers who served in the American <laughs> Revolution, for example. Yeah. Um, so a very wide variety of possible fates for these men. But the important thing, again, is to recognize that they were people just like the ones in the American army. So let's uh, let's wind this up. Uh, but I wanted to, before we do that, um, I wanted as we wind that up, I wanted to talk about sources. Uh, as you said, uh, the sources you look at, um, you have a hard time figuring out why. Um, but to do to be able to start to ask you to be able to ask why, you have to put together a lot of data. Um, where are you dri- deriving that data from? How do you sort the data? I mean, where do you, what tools are you using? Are you starting to use data analytics? Because this is like your bread and butter as a historian. Are you and you're and you're also an engineer in your day job, so you think you yeah. think mathematically. Um, so, what sort of tools are you using to sort through this stuff? Well, I'm and this, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I don't really use very many tools because the, the limitation of all the data analytics tools that's available that are available is you have to get the data into them somehow, <laughs> and and that's it's it, it's brutally time consuming to do that. So I put together a lot of I usually just use simple spreadsheets to put data together and do some summations and get averages. I, I don't like to get too preoccupied with using statistics uh-huh. because that can be misleading. Sometimes I, I, I don't like to give precise numbers. I don't like to use numbers with decimal points in them. Right. Yeah, you know, I'd rather sure. say a little over half than say 55.2% because, you know, a little over half sits in your head a little. It, it's easier to grasp. And also I don't want to give a false sense of precision. Mm-hmm. I might have, for example, 2,000 soldiers that I look at and I say, well, of them were literate. Well, if I suddenly find another 500 and add them to the data, that could change the number to be 58.3%. So I don't want to have that precision. I'd rather say, well, a little over half were literate. That's easier to grasp, but it takes into account that I don't have data on every single person. Um, Most of the demographic data I use comes from pension records which were kept very meticulously, and they tell us the soldier's age, the number of years he served in the army, and where he was born, and his trade if he had one. So there's four key demographic things I have, and I have this kind of data for close to half of the British soldiers who served in the revolution who were eligible to receive pensions, which means they didn't die during the time they were in the army, they didn't desert, etc. That works out to about maybe a third of all the British soldiers who served in the war. So what's the so, number on that? Just to, to, to ask you a terrible, about 10,000? Yeah. No, I, in, in terms of when I say British soldiers now, I'm talking about men who were in the red coats in the British regular army during the war. So I'm not counting the loyalists, I'm not counting Germans, Indian allies. The, the rough figure I've derived is about 50,000 men, individual okay. soldiers. And that's probably, you know, plus or minus 20% because there's a lot of detail. But I, I arrive at this figure by looking at another, the other key source I use, a regimental muster rolls, which gives us the name of each person who served in a regiment and 
they were kept typically every six months. So if I get year after year after year of the muster rolls, I can find when did a man join the army and when did he leave the army? And, and I know from muster rolls, whether he left because he was deserted or he died or he discharged, he was discharged. The roles aren't complete for all regiments, but they're complete for some. And I look at a few regiments and I estimate what was probably going on in the other regiments. You're being very modest, but this is a hell of a data set that you've built up over the years. Uh, yes. Um, and the, the challenge here is what I don't have is I couldn't just say, okay, and here's the database and hand it to you. You know, I have all these muster rolls and I gather things up and I count them and I compare them, but I haven't entered them all into a singular tool to do well, we a need, lot of this analysis. We need, to get do a, we need to get a grant for you so you can hire some mindless grad student to do it for you. If you got the grant, <laughs> I got the data, my friend. <laughs> I mean, this is... Uh, this Why is, do I have the data? It would, yeah, I mean, it, but it would be interesting. I mean, when we've got stuff like this, this is like... Um, this is Don Hagas' contribution to like uh, Founders Online. I mean, this is a this is a invaluable resource for people to play around with because there's lots well, of... Well, I'll tell you what. I, I have taken muster rolls for some British regiments and put all of the names in spreadsheets. You know, they're manuscript mm -hmm. documents. You're trying to read original handwriting. And then I make nice alphabetical spreadsheet for every man. I've done this for a few British regiments. And I've asked other people to help because there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I love the British Army and the American Revolution. I can do that too. So I say, here's what you do. Here's a template spreadsheet. Here's uh -huh. an example of one filled out. Here's all the data. Here's, you know, 500 photographs of original muster. And nobody ever follows through yeah. because it's tedious yeah. work. It, yeah. It's just a lot of labor. I, yeah. You know, I don't have enough time to do it all myself, but I've picked away and gotten enough. I've gotten enough sample data out of this to be able to do things like write this book. But I would love to have all of it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, we'd have much more fidelity and more important, we'd have many more individuals who we could look at and say, oh, this was a real person. I know when he was born. I know what town he was born and what he did before he joined the army. And an avid researcher might then want to go and say, maybe I can find even more on him by looking not at the large collections of data in the British War Office, but in the smaller local collections that... Mm -hmm we know have troves of data just waiting for somebody there's, to have the there's time a lot and energy of, to go through A lot them. of strange things in, in um, English county record offices. You know, oh, uh, absolutely. And I've gotten little bits and pieces of it, but there's so much you can find about individual people. Um, not so much by saying, I want to learn about this one person, but rather by saying, let me just go and see what's here. Oh, here's a little record of a soldier who... Uh -huh got married. Here's a record of a soldier who was discharged and came to the town looking for work. And here's a, a uh, record of a man who ran away from his family and abandoned his wife and, and joined the army. These kinds of records are all over. And uh, again, I've, I've found little bits and pieces here and there, and it's only for want of time <laughs> that I don't have more. So, so I, let me, final question. Um, uh, I, I almost feel bad about asking this, but I know that people are, are thinking it, so I'll ask it. What's the benefit of all this? 
I, this is what's these are little tidbits about uh, Samuel Lee and you know Roger Lamb and all the other privates and NCOs of the British Army. Uh, is this just what? What's the benefit of this information? People, I, I'm sorry to ask such an American question, but people oh, are always, at, are always asking for like cost benefit. What's the cost benefit analysis of this? What's the return on investment? Well, the return on investment isn't very good. I'll, my own personal reason for doing this is yeah. that um, humans in general have this something about our wiring that makes us like to collect things. And some people collect model ships and some people collect bottle caps. I collect data on British soldiers. And, <laughs> and, and, and you laugh, but I mean, I get the same charge out of finding some new scrap of information about a soldier that somebody else gets at finding that that political pin that they didn't have that fills a gap in their collection. So that's my little individual benefit. In terms of understanding the American Revolution, it's very important to recognize that an army is made up of people. There's For Americans, we tend to look and say, oh, look at our patriot heroes who did this and that, and, and who were they fighting? Well, the British. Well, who are those guys? You know, they were people too. Um, it's important when looking at any war to avoid characterizing it as good guys versus bad guys, because no army ever took the field with the perspective that we're the bad guys. And yet a lot of American history is written from the perspective of, well, there's good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys must have just been bad. And if their cause was bad, then their people must have been bad. And we get this, then this idea that, well, British soldiers were bad because they were fighting against us. So they must have done bad things. And let's look at the bad and the, all the bad. Yeah. And I try to strip that away and say, Let, let's look at who the people were in the army. What was it made up of? What were their lives like? Why were they fighting? Were they bad? Were they trying to be bad? Um, so, so these are all important reasons, I think, to to have a better perspective. It's also really important to have that reminder that if the British Army was, in fact, a good army, why did the war take eight years? Uh -huh. Or counterwise, if the American Army was so good, so innovative, they hid behind rocks and trees, and they had sharpshooters, and they did all these things, why did it take eight years to win the war? If the British Army was a bunch of bumbling pushovers, is it really a good story that your side beat them if they were bad at what they did? Or is it a more important story to say, wow, those guys were really, really great at fighting and they beat the Americans over and over and over again. Why did the Americans keep fighting? What was it that made them believe so deeply in this cause of liberty that they were willing to fight an eight-year-long war against an army that was really good at fighting against them. That must have been, their, their level of commitment must have been remarkable. And, and it's good to look at the war with that perspective. If, if we believe in the values that this country has, it's important to look at the commitment that the people who founded the nation had to the ideals that they had, that they were willing to not just say, oh, well, there's a bunch of bumbling idiots who don't know how to fight. We'll just throw them out. Instead, it's like, wow, we're going to take on 
you know, we're David taking on Goliath here, and this is going to be tough. It's going to take a long time, but somehow we're going to do it. You know, would I be willing to do that today to put that level of commitment into some of the deprivation that soldiers had to go to? So understanding the British army and what it really was helps the perspective on understanding the American army and what it really was and the level of commitment people had to have had to their ideals in order to fight the war that they chose to fight. My guest today has been Don Hagist. He's the author of Noble Volunteers, the British soldiers who fought the American Revolution. Don, thank you so much for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>